Hello and welcome to this fourth episode of the SportsMap podcast, where we are talking all things sports medicine, physiotherapy, rehabilitation and return to performance. Now, I'm very excited about our guest today, where we'll be talking all things ACL with Tim McGrath. Tim has a wealth of experience in professional sport. He's the current head of physio and medical services at St. George Illawarra in the NRL. He's previously worked with other sporting clubs such as Port Adelaide in the AFL, the Brumbies in Super Rugby, Canberra Raiders and the Australian Men's Rugby 7 teams amongst others. He also runs a high performance training facility called Elite Rehab in Canberra and he's the clinical director for Pitch Ready which is a sport testing device used to optimise return to play from lower limb injury, mainly the knee. Outside of Tim's sporting experience, he holds a PhD in ACL, Rehabilitation and Return to Sport of the Knee. He has a master's degree in both sports and musculoskeletal physiotherapy. And finally, he has graduated with a diploma in Extended Scope Physiotherapy Practice and Data Science. From my end today, Tim was a really obvious choice to talk ACL. Someone who has researched to the nth degree, he's presented on it numerous times, and he works in both a clinical practice and professional sport where you can really apply that knowledge to elite athletes, but also sub-elite athletes. I think he's one of the leading minds in Australia on ACL rehabilitation. It's a much publicised topic in Australia at the moment. and really looking forward to hearing what Tim has to say in this space. Thanks for joining us, Tim. Uh, no worries. Mate, so at the moment you're spreading your time across numerous sort of platforms of work, elite physiotherapy in Canberra and St. George Illawarra amongst others. Fill us in on what you're doing with your time at the moment. Oh, yeah, I've got a nice variety at the moment. I've got a sort of a research background going on with kind of looking at return to sport outcomes, particularly sort of in uh, elite populations. Um, we've had the We've had the practice uh, going out since about 2011 in Canberra, so it's gone from a small little group to uh, at a nice size now. So it's yeah, so that I, I enjoy that, and then yeah, and I spread my and I'm sort of part time over at uh, St George there as well. So the, the combination of all three, yeah, I find it really enjoyable. It's good variety between them. It's good, mate, and uh, a couple of kids that keep you busy. We've got three, so oldest is nine and youngest uh, youngest is five, two boys and a girl. So I'm now coaching a under-8s AFL team, so that's I probably find that more stressful than um, looking after footballers, to be honest. Good to hear you're sort of ticking all the boxes there and making sure you're a good father but also a uh, good physio and doing doing the work down at St. George Illawarra. They're about to start in a couple of weeks. How's it all looking? Yeah, they've got a clean sheet. To start the season, which which is always nice. I had a pretty good run through last last year was my first year with them. Um, they had a pretty good run through. They set a record, I think, for the number of weeks consecutively they had the starting team, which was nice. They had a couple of injuries late in the year, um, which then sort of carried over into the preseason. But since Christmas, they've had more or less a clean sheet, which is good. Mate, now we've got you on board, obviously, to talk uh, around ACLs, which is your area of expertise. Uh, I've been lucky enough to hear you sort of talk on this before, and I think you've got some fantastic information to sort of pass through to our listeners. So why don't we kick things off in around the space of prevention? What are the sort of critical mechanisms of injury factors that you've talked about in the past that are really important to this? From what we know from research in terms of the mechanism, the the three most common uh, mechanisms in kind of football environments, the most common is pressing towards an opponent at high speed. 
Uh, second most important is uh, regaining balance after kicking in the third is kind of landing from a jump. So in terms of how you frame up your injury prevention, I think – uh, you know, there's lots of strategies that people try to employ, but for me, it's all about trying to build resilience in those in those sorts of environments. I was talking with a colleague yesterday, and I feel like if we were to ask a younger physio what are the key things around ACL prevention, they would sort of do some landing control, look at dynamic knee valgus, give them some maybe balance or neuromuscular exercises, and maybe some hip strength. Based on what you said there, clearly we're not sort of covering all bases, are we? No, not really. I mean, given you know when you look at some of the strategies that uh, that have come out over the years, like the FIFA 11, are excellent because they do sort of focus in on, you know, sports-specific strength and some of the things like jump landing. But if you look at the sort of the high end of the FIFA 11, there is some emphasis on uh, running and change of direction, but it is a probably a smaller component compared to the other elements. Yet it's the uh, if you, you watch videos of people doing ACLs, it's it's you know easily the most sort of common element. What would be your sort of, if you were to implement a system around sort of ACL prevention in team-based sport, what would be your sort of bang-for-the-buck approach to try to sort of cover those key aspects? The best way that we sort of try to explain, especially to athletes, is using like a race car sort of analogy. So you've got the, the car itself, which is the, you know, the engine, the chassis, the suspension, all the elements that make the car go fast. And then you've got the race car driver itself. So applying that to a to a knee prevention program that the the car aspect is things like strength leg power you know a lot of those kind of capacity based sort of elements and then the 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 race car driver is that ability to you know for a player to press forward an opponent high speed contested marking things like that and it's how their body reacts under that pressure so you know the from a mechanism point of view it's the knee always tends to find itself in an element of, you know, low knee flexion uh, combined with either an element of rotation and/or valgus. So, what you want to try and do is train an athlete so that they're under these stressful sort of situations that they're, you know, choosing to avoid those scenarios. Or, you know, their, their body—it's not even a conscious decision. It's a—it's at a sort of a more subconscious level than that. But they're, you know, reacting. In, in that way rather than t- towards a tendency to have that sort of an injury situation happen. I've heard you mention around the sort of feed-forward mechanism of sort of thigh muscle activity around 150 milliseconds and how that being our sort of first defence. Is that sort of some of that space what you're talking about? And, and if so, how do we sort of train that feed-forward mechanism to stop us getting into those vulnerable positions? Different research you'll read about is you yeah, about 150 milliseconds before an activity, your, your brain is sort of pre-processing information and making a decision about the, the movement that it wants to kind of undertake. And then within sort of 40 to 50 milliseconds after the activity, your first, your body's first response to the movement is a, is a reflex arc. Um, and then your body's ability to appreciate information is somewhere around 500 milliseconds. So given that ACL injuries happen within a sort of around a 40 to 50 millisecond window from the time that your foot makes contact with the ground, um, then any of those, you know, your body's ability to appreciate what happens is way beyond the time period for when, uh, for when you hurt yourself. So um, in terms of sort of cueing feed forward, it's, um, you know, velocity is important. So it's all about trying to create stressful situations for the body and then trying to, you know, put it in positions where 
it is closer to to how they're going to hurt themselves. Um, so velocity is a you know a good way of creating duress because, like we said, it's pressing at, at high speed is where injury situations happen, and um, and we know that knee loading mechanisms on the knee are, are, are not stressful enough, you know, under sort of four meters per second. So we've started building normative databases around elite athletes and change of direction, what sort of velocities they're hitting. And as a minimum um, with higher end guys, it's around sort of seven meters per second or even faster. And, you know, some of the, we've had an English Premier League guy who was about eight meters per second at change of direction. So, you know, having rehab, particularly if, if you're working in private practice and, you've only got small space if you're only challenging people at sort of lower end velocities then you're not challenging them in a way that's going to eke out some of those bad habits once they get to a sporting situation our australian listeners would be well aware of sort of the much publicized aflw um high acl injury rate that we have at the moment that's our um women's football competition here in australia aiming to prevent some of these injuries that we're seeing in this competition would that uh, apply to these women much the same? Very much so. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Obviously, the rates are much higher in, say, the AFLW. I think they're talking about eight times higher than male counterparts. Um, and there's been lots of sort of reasons thrown around there from things related to gender, menstrual cycle, you know, that sort of stuff, but also, you know, the fact that the game has expanded so dramatically that there's some elements uh, in that. So from, you know, from the preventable sort of aspects i would attack it in a, in a very in a very similar way and interestingly like they looked at cohorts where people have had an acl and looking at risk of second injuries you know in, in you know larger studies in the u.s and interestingly like gender wasn't a um a risk factor for a second injury so that, that makes me think that it can't all just be sort of non-modifiable factors they're all you know there, there's got to be some elements there that we can sort of work on to try and mitigate risk We'll just take a moment there to thank our Showcast sponsor. This episode is sponsored by iMeasureU. Used by leading biomechanic researchers, IMU is used to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. iMeasureU recently released IMU Step, a dual sensor lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. Unlike GPS, IMU Step focuses on lower limb musculoskeletal load and works via two small synchronized high frequency sensors when worn on the tibia. They quantify the three dimensional force of every step an athlete takes left and right limb load asymmetry and cumulative bone load. Wired by Vicon in 2017, iMeasureU works with professional athletes and coaches from around the world. If you want to know more about how IMU Measure can help your athletes back to performance, head over to their website at imeasureu.com and follow them on Twitter. I guess uh, a lot of the time in sport, we try to obviously benchmark certain tests against pre-injury status. Um, If we don't have those pre-injury benchmarks, we often go left versus right. Uh, but in a sports setting, if you had the opportunity to take some pre-injury measures um, as benchmarks to get back to for ACL or really any injury for that matter around the knee, um, what would be the key ones you'd want to have that information for? Again, if you're applying it back to the to the mechanism, um, then from a we tend to work from a baseline and working up. So um, in a pre-injury sense, where generally you know strength is not as big an issue in a, in a sort of a healthy training population. But um, it's certainly in a post-injury sense, I would do that very much as a, as a baseline. But, you know, uh, pre-injury 
is probably not as important. Um, so in a healthy population, it becomes very much about those capacity-based tests. So um, we tend to broadly break um, leg power up into horizontal and kind of vertical actions. So for me, I, I like a drop jump, um, looking at that ability to kind of absorb and then um, produce force in a, in a relatively timely manner. Um, and then in horizontal, I do like a I do like a hop test. I tend to, as part of the PhD, um, I looked at the whole gamut of of hop tests, um, and what we tend to, you know what we found was that the the spread of the data across all three tests was very very similar. So they tend to tell you all the same things. So I'm very happy just you know leaving it to one hop test, and I pick a cross hop because I want to get, you know, with some of the biomechanical um, data we're collecting, I want to try and get that sort of offline action. But in terms of just pure capacity, um, uh, that's that's generally all I'm, I'm really after. Uh, and then the, the other stuff that we're sort of getting is more around the change of direction. So uh, using kind of, bio, you know, biomechanical data, getting people to press at high speed, uh, unanticipated change of direction and then you know try and use um, you know some of that some of that data as well so I guess if you're trying to keep it simple um, it, it'd be very much around the vertical and horizontal um, leg power nice now um, so I've only got one or two sh- sort of short questions around surgery but obviously we hear a lot about different surgical techniques graphs etc um, what would be your chosen technique based on your experience Honestly, I think it, it depends more on the what the surgeon, for whatever specific surgeon, if we're talking about operations, um, the technique that they're most comfortable with. Like from what I've seen, each technique has its own sort of subtle variation. But in the end, if you have a surgeon who is good with that technique, I don't have strong opinions about different graft choices and things like that. And if you look at um, studies that have good data, you know, from the research, and they have populations in Scandinavia that have huge knee registries. We're talking, you know, well over a hundred thousand knees, um, and graft type is something that you know doesn't wash out as being a, a big variable for kind of re-injury. So, um, for me, it's it's other factors, anatomical ones like the tunnel placement and you know those sorts of things, rather than the specific uh, the specific graft choice. Question from our Twitter feed today is, what about the management around non-surgical approach to ACL injuries? Uh, we're reading about it a lot in literature. Um, we obviously here in Europe, there's much less sort of surgical intervention as there is here in Australia. Um, where do you fit on this? I think it's an interesting one and, and I, it makes me sort of feel a little bit old because I've seen it come and go um, in my time. So when I first sort of started as a, as a physio, uh, non-operative management was, um, you know, very much sort of coming into things then, um, and then it sort of dropped off the radar for a while. And then it's sort of making a bit of a comeback. And again, if you look at the research, I mean, again, there isn't sort of strong evidence to really push for one or the other. Um, you know, th- th- we used to be told that we'd have an operation, you know, to try and prevent, you know. Um, secondary arthritis after you'd injured your ACL but there's no great evidence to kind of support that sort of either way you know and the risk is somewhere between sort of 30 and 60 percent once you've had an ACL depending on the the group that you're looking at so my take on it at the moment is um, it's probably population specific so you know some physios are very vocal about 
uh, non-operative management. And particularly, there's a bit of a push towards sort of elite levels. But I've personally, again, early in my career, I had one that did have a non-operative management. Um, I My first year with him was about six years after he'd had it. He had a, uh, a primary sort of an injury. Um, and if you watched him play, he was on his left knee. So he'd always play on the right-hand edge. It was in rugby league. And he had a knee that um, by then was had you know grade four chondral changes everywhere. So I've I've always been a little bit sort of burned by that. I've never seen that ever since you know from a, a, an elite athlete who's had a recon having such rapid sort of arthritis. So I think it sort of depends on the population. Certainly there are people in general population who don't have high demand on the knee. They may well be very good candidates for non-surgical management. I'm probably less convinced that you know right at the top end where demand on the knee, particularly around pivoting and change of direction, are much more crucial to their knee. And, you know, in some of those environments, if people do have a second injury and then sustain a significant chondral injury or something like that, then it's not like it's a no harm, no foul, you know, sort of scenario where you go on operative and then you can always go and have an operation later sort of thing. I expect to hear it probably uh, hotly debated and uh, continue to probably hear a fair bit about it. Um, we love talking about rehab here on this podcast, so we'll move into sort of that space. And I guess I'll sort of fire off a, a general question to start with that I think everyone who is pretty skilled in rehab a lot of the times, if they've worked with ACLs a lot, but um, as someone who sort of sees the, the top end of the athletes, what are some errors or common issues you see made in ACL rehabilitation that sort of hasn't gone as well as it could have? The most common one is probably people who get on ongoing patellofemoral pain, um, and it's often because they don't quite get that quad activation in, in terminal knee extension. So I'm a I'm a big stickler for like gait early days, getting people to sort of walk not walk with a fixed flexion of their knee, which sounds obvious, but you'd be surprised how good the body is working around that, um, and then very much with quad loading people are very keen to sort of try and push range with with quad loading early is where i tend to try and stay fairly shallow and i'm very happy to build up reasonably high loads uh early in, in closed chain and the reason for that is you're trying to build that suspension system of the knee uh without sort of adding compressive load to the to the joint so um it's not in that sort of subacute phase in that prep to run that I'm actually starting to push into range. Um, the early days I'm trying to throw a fair bit of load at them but keep them keep them fairly shallow. So that that's one sort of common error. The second is more towards the higher end sort of stuff. So, again, it's, especially when you can drill down to sort of kinematic modelling of people doing change direction and all that sort of stuff is often um, there hasn't been enough thought put into the end stages from the, from the get-go. So... Uh, again, for years we changed direction. We, it used to be very compartmental. We used to do range and you know general function first. Then we used to do strength. Then we used to do kind of plyometrics and power. Then we used to do change of direction. As where generally I want to have all of those going in some capacity as, as early as possible. So you have people doing change of direction within the first few weeks, albeit they're just doing it walking speed. But you're practicing that primary deceleration with their leg foot under their body trying to drive laterally through their hips when they're doing it so that you know any of these kind of learning components you're not going to hardwire that into the brain in you know within a couple of weeks so if you want to have your best chance of carryover you've got to try and feed that in as, as early as you can so by the time you're wanting to train that with any kind of intensity or velocity 
they've had hopefully eight million goes at it beforehand. So you would start that sort of technical change direction, as you say, even at a walking pace really quite early on? Yeah, within within a couple of weeks. I've got a couple of points which we'll, we'll touch back on around sort of early quad loading, but while we're on change of direction, you know, we read a little bit about the different types of change direction steps, whether it's split step, a crossover step or a side step, uh, and, the, and how each sort of different uh, change direction mechanics can place different loads on the knee. How do you sort of train or coach uh, change of direction in ACL rehabilitation? I tend to look at, for things like a crossover cut, which is where they decelerate primarily with their contralateral leg and then kind of veer into the turn. So that, you know, the, the benefits of that supposedly is you can maintain velocity and there's, you know, lower loads to the knee. From a rehab point of view, the body is very clever and, and what it, you know, from what I've seen that it, it's trying to not use whatever the, you know, their deficiency is. So if they've just had a knee injury, um, often that's their go-to strategy is to try and do something like a crossover cut when they're not well rehabbed. So what I'm trying to do is prepare them for kind of worst case scenario, which is, you know, a more traditional sort of cut. So if I'm, I'm wanting people in rehab to, to expose them as much as I can to that primary, to that primary cut, which is that, you know, try and push decel, you know, hard deceleration on that, you know, injured side, um, with, you know, foot under body and then kind of a lateral drive through their hip into change of direction. So often I, if I see in the latter stages of rehab, people choosing habitually with, you know, something like a, just a, 30 to 40 degree change of direction if they're doing it as a crossover cut I, I see that as a bit of a failing on my part in a way the, i see that as their body inherently trying to kind of stay away from the you know the action that is you know most puts the knee at its most vulnerable do you have any sort of key coaching points or cues that you use to emphasize that that real sidestep and that real drive through the hip like how do you sort of train the athlete to that it's a hard one. Again, you try and do it in a lot of those sort of slower drills, you know, early. But one that I really like is just a, you know, a banded drill where you just have one person sort of on that same side. So if they're going to step off their right leg, the, you know, the individual's off to the right. The person is just literally just walking forwards and then putting their foot under their body and then trying to, you know, step off to the left with their right leg not letting them turn their shoulders, not letting them you know, have their foot, their knee sort of come turn inside where the, the level of where their foot is necessarily and then applying a bit of load so that their foot, naturally the body wants to do what it's going to do at high speed, which is try and put your foot out wide, turn your trunk, do all those sort of habits that you see people do at high speed. So I like that the best one because it teaches the body to sort of self-organize itself so that it, you know, it make it harder for them to do it wrong than it is for them to do it right. So if, if I had to pick one drill, that would be my favorite one every time. And you guys actually do a fair bit of analysis of that, video analysis, and, and you're looking at some biomechanics at times. Is that about right down there at the clinic? So in terms of the change of direction stuff, so we use yeah 3D kinematics to do that because – there are certain things you can see, um, you know, just with playing camera. Like you said, you can see whether they've done a crossover cut or a primary cut. You can see which is their primary leg that they're sort of deselling with. We wanted to sort of try and drill down to a bit more of the detail of where's the hip, a change of direction, you know, foot and ankle position. So the, the foot and ankle has a great ability to kind of attenuate load through the through the knee. So if people are really flat-footed, then that, that's got some ramifications for the knee. Um, and then obviously, 
you can look at broad terms about whether someone is changing direction with a really straight leg, for instance, which is, you know, then all they need is a bit of rotation and valgus to kind of set their knee off. But we just wanted to be able to sort of drill down into a bit more of the micro, micro detail of that. Just around that early stage quad loading we were chatting about before and you were talking about uh, loading a fair bit, closed chain exercises, less range of motion there. When do you start to introduce your open chain exercises with the quads and when I when I first started as a physio, you know, knee extensions and any kind of open chain was seen as the devil. It was, you know, you, you don't do it because it's going to shear the graft and all that sort of stuff. Now, we know that there is probably a small element of shear on there. Like, they've, you know, um, again, you've got to take it with a grain of salt, but uh, studies have kind of rated the shear forces around sort of 300 newtons compared to, say, jumping, which is around kind of 1,200 newtons. So there is a small element of shear on the knee and, um, you know, the, the general advice, which is probably more arbitrary than anything else is to wait to around sort of six weeks after say like an ACL reconstruction. So personally, I don't do a lot of open chain if I'm honest, only because, you know, with some of the, the terminal knee drills that we do in closed chain, I haven't felt like I've been struggling to get that kind of quad activation in, into extension. So I don't do it only for that reason, not because I'm, worried about shearing on the knee or you know anything like that as we come forward on the tail end of sort of rehabilitation uh we're starting to look at return to play um, there's a lot of outcome measures that we hear about um many of those sort of clinic based are we covering our bases here with our return to play markers in sport at the moment it's actually quite scary when you do look at some papers that say there was a, a paper that came out recently from the states where it was talking about the percentage of younger athletes that meet, you know, classical discharge criteria. So symmetry within 90% with a hop test and, and they used uh, isokinetic dynamometry as their strength measure. And it was a really low percentage, like 15 or 16% of people met like a 90% or above on the, on the injured side. So it was a ridiculously low number. And then having said that, these days I've sort of got my head around you know, some of the data science side of things just to try and look at the power of different tests, what they tell you and what they don't tell you. And from the data that, we, that we've had is that um, a lot of these capacity-based tests that, you know, that we're talking about, that gets you sort of half to three-quarters of the way there. The last sort of um, icing on the cake is, like I said, is the, the body's preferences under, under stress, particularly with change of direction and jumping. So, I think if we're not looking at those things, then we're really missing a big part of the big part of the picture. And even in terms of when you start looking at um, symmetry, we did a systematic review as part of my PhD, and the worst of all the classical tests you look at, like isokinetics and jump testing, and you know those sorts of things, uh, ground reaction forces, is that the worst symmetry was about uh, 94%. So, um, and most of them were closer to 100%. So. Uh, there is no real effective limb dominance when you start talking about um, a lot of these classical tests. So if we're setting the bar with, you know, we're, we're trying to discharge people on just capacity-based tests and we're setting the bar at 90%, I reckon, I reckon we're really selling ourselves short in terms of trying to, you know, prevent secondary injury. Uh, a recent uh, paper I read from Ender King found their single-leg drop jump was probably better at identifying sort of tween limb differences than sort of general um, hop tests and things like that. Have you found anything like that similar? 
Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. In terms of how you know people sort of tend to progress through the stages when you start talking about benchmarking, um, generally their strength stuff normalizes first, then their kind of horizontal power, so hop testing anything that you get there, then your vertical leg power, like your drop jumping, things like that, and then it's the change of direction is kind of the last thing to sort of come good. So it does tend to follow a, a reasonably sort of classical pattern like that from the from the athletes we've seen. What would you need to see for one of your athletes to return from ACL? Again, as part of looking at all this, we've, we've built a normative database um, spread across elite athletes from uh, English Rugby Union, English Premier League, uh, AFL, NRL and rugby in Australia. And I'd like to see two things. If you're talking about capacity, it needs to be within a normal range for elite athletes. So, for instance, if you're talking a cross-hop, an average there is around over six metres, so around kind of 6.2 metres. So you've got to have both legs within a certain range for, for norms for that population um, and it's, a high, you know, it's, it's lower for kind of sub-elite populations, et cetera. Um, and then also, like I said, with your limb symmetry, I go above 90, I'm going sort of 94 as a bare minimum. And then also we've also got normative data around some of the kinematics of, you know, jump landing, change of direction, that sort of stuff. So that for me is uh, quite an important one. There's no point in having the capacity-based stuff without the kinematic data. What about from a uh, field-based point of view, you know, um, how long do they have to be training, uh, how fast they need to be running, what do you need to see from their agility, change direction aspects, you know, outside of those tests? What gives you an indication in your mind that your elite athlete that you're working with is ready to return to play at the highest level? got to look at the demands of the sport. So they're all different. So, for instance, if you're talking a rugby union prop, then there's there's a lot of bash and crash there. Um, there is a bit of change of direction, but it's, you know, um, obviously not as much. So they need to be really strong for set piece, like scrummaging, things like that. If you're talking an outside back, then they obviously have to be able to kind of tolerate big sprint loads so you talk you know not just talking about knee now we're talking about kind of soft tissue sort of point of view um but from that point of view they need to be much more adept and confident with things like change of direction contested high balls you know afl is obviously a similar scenario with that as well where it's contested marking uh and obviously you have to get through a body of contact as well so you've got your you've got your classical test but then also they need a good graded exposure through you know, somewhat closed environments with training and then kind of going into open ones as well. And ultimately, athletes are pretty good. Once they've sort of passed all your, your classical definitions and they're often good judges to say, well, honestly, when I generally want them having a bare minimum of two weeks of just totally unrestricted training where they're, you know, not, they're just the same as everyone else um, and more is even better. You know, when they're at the point of, you know, asking which one's their injured knee and they're sort of having to look down and look at the scar on their knee if they've had an operation, that sort of stuff, you know, when they're not really thinking about their knee because obviously fear is a, is a big thing coming back from a, a significant knee injury. So when they're not really thinking about it, you know, that's probably from a, a field-based point of view, that's, that's really the things I'm looking for. You mentioned a little bit there about speed and soft tissue injuries, etc. Obviously, when we get these uh, hamstring grafts that were used, sometimes you get that athlete that's really struggles to get back that hamstring strength back, whether it's the, just the inner range aspect or whether it's their outer range eccentric strength. You really, they really struggle to sort of find that again. You know, how do you get their hamstring strength back really well through a rehab and how much do you think that is of importance? 
In terms of like again, you'll read in research where they talk about you know hamstring deficits at two years of around twenty seven percent, all that sort of stuff. To me, and, and we just haven't had that as an issue with you know hamstring strength. So to me, it's probably more to do with our programming rather than it's just a natural thing that happens after you've had say like a hamstring graft. You should expect a deficit. So you know early earlier in my career, I used to, for things like hamstring stuff, you know your traditional physio go to is things like a hamstring bridge, is where I, I don't do much of that anymore like i'm early days i'm more into um you know knee dominant actions as quickly as i can so things like heel slides um regress the exercise so that they can do it with reasonable you know reasonable effort without making it so hard that their body's trying to compensate around it you know things like heel slides you know hamstring curls hip dominant exercises a lot of your bosch sort of style drills when you, you know heavier sort of isometric drills around the hip hamstring um nordic variations like we we throw heaps and heaps at people so um as a bare minimum 20 to 25 you know more or less super maximal hamstring efforts in their program in a week who do you think what type of person is it that responds best to an acl rehabilitation whether it's you know how strong they were at the start but also from a mental capacity point of view I think you, you've sort of got two kinds. You've got the ones that tend to be the warriors that want lots of detail on everything and sometimes you can fill their head, you know, in, in an effort to sort of try and help them, you can fill their head with too much information. So for some of them, it's, you know, actually try and dumb it down, make it really simple for them, give them clear milestones, um, almost reassure them, you know, things are going to be okay, that sort of stuff versus the ones who are a bit more cavalier, and you're almost trying to protect them from themselves. So they're, they're the ones that you're sort of probably trying to instill a little bit of fear into them just so that you try and keep them on track for a little while. So you, you probably get your two sort of broad categories quite often, I've found. We do. We see a lot about ACLs, both social media and the literature to read about, uh, to learn about. Uh, who are some people you recommend sort of listening to and, and reading from out there on ACLs um, other than yourself, people who you might actually go to learn off? Yeah, you know, we talked about Ender before. I think the work they're doing is uh, is, is excellent. You sort of get different things from from different people. You know, the, the work they're doing is great. The publications they're they're sort of putting out are great. Tim Hewitt uh, over in the states has has done some good work. The things that I've read from him, he's quite worldly. He doesn't sort of jump at shadows. He he is very considered about the about the things that that he says. Dos Santos, um, some of the work that you know, talking about you know different. Uh, change your direction sort of models and you know different strategies that people employ I, I really like that because that that's really the probably I think where things are going is you know trying to apply um, coaching strategies and techniques around that change of direction so yeah I think uh, I think they're doing some doing some really good work as well what about you mate who would be one of or a couple of your biggest influences on your career today in the physio respect there's a physio currently working for Leicester Tigers by the name of Ed Hollis, and uh, I give him a I give him a fair bit of stick. But you know he was he was a an old mature sort of physio when I first started. So he he was one of the first guys that took me on. I was lucky enough to get involved in you know professional sport at a pretty young age, like I was 25 when I first started. So I was I was really lucky on that front. And it was basically due to him. So if I got anywhere in in sport, it's probably uh, Probably because of him, um, and a lot of the a lot of the other influences are probably you know more sports physicians. You know, there's a the current 
Rugby Australia medical director, a guy named Warren McDonald. He was running Super Rugby, Brumbies, when I first sort of started working there. So he, some of these guys are you know, in sports positions. They're just impeccable with their diagnosis and ability to look at imaging and you know coming up with good, good structured plans. And and that was a really big thing for me was you can't can't have a plan and you can't have a good rehab plan if you don't know where you sort of the, the point that you're starting from. So. That was something I learned. You know, David Hughes, uh, who's at the AOS now, he was a another uh, another person that had a really big influence on me. Was just that that coming up with a really good diagnosis, and then um, you know that just makes the rest of it. Yeah, you know, it's much easier if you know where you you know the point that you're starting from. And um, what's next for you then, mate? Any plans coming up? Uh, research. What's next on your radar? Pretty much for me, it's more around objectivity around return to sport benchmarking um we've had some involvement in in the uk and around australia with some of the return to sport testing we've been doing um trying to sort of get overseas towards the u.s hopefully sort of mid to late uh this year so yeah it's probably around that space on the research front that um is probably the next thing that we're going to try and get going and obviously uh assist St. George Illawarra from a medical point of view back to um, winning a premiership, mate, of course. This is my 15th or 16th year in professional sport and I haven't won a single thing. So I've had a few stints in finals and, and not much else. So that would be really, really good if I can actually be involved in a team that actually wins something for a change. Uh, well, mate, fantastic. Look, really appreciate your time coming on board. As I said, you are a busy man, um, but I think you've got heaps of valuable information and insight from both research and experience to pass on to all the physios and, and strength and conditioning coaches out there working in ACLs. So uh, we really appreciate having you on board. Uh, look forward to hearing from you um, down the track in one way or another. And, uh, yeah, mate, all the best for the season. No worries. No worries.